This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So if you hear some sirens outside the window, that's why. Today, we'll talk with Sarah Eckel about her new book, It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons You're Single. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese will talk about the year's top library stories. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you have on the nonfiction list for us, well, Mark? Well, as, as, uh, as we, we w- would have uh, predicted... Um, the beginning of the year offers uh, New Year's resolutions uh, for losing weight and for getting more financially fit as well. So we've got four books on the list. Uh, two of them are uh, business books. One is called uh, Financially Fearless, the Learn Vest program for taking control of your money. This is Alexa Von Tobel. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of a financial planning site called LearnVest.com, and that's the uh, book title. Uh, that is at number five at number seven is uh jim kramer's get rich uh carefully and uh jim kramer's talk show host and uh that is number seven moving on to body fitness uh we have the fast metabolism diet cookbook eat even more food and lose even more weight says Haley pomeroy and that's at number 12 uh that's coming out from harmony and then we have super shred uh the big results diet four weeks 20 pounds lose it faster by ian k smith and that's at number six all right, so it definitely sounds like everybody's wanting to start the year off on the right foot. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Well, uh, the news is a little bit more grim over on the fiction side. Oh, no. I, I don't know what this says about people's attitudes, but we've just got uh, a lot of a lot of thrillers uh, to start off the year. But honestly, it may just be that these are the big books launching this week. I think a lot of fiction publishers hold off on their big launches uh, during December because they want to either get it out in time for Christmas shopping or get it out. Out early in the following year, and so. I wonder if people just need an escape after the after the. That holidays. is also certainly possible. <laughs> like, get me out of here. Yeah, if, if you if your visit to your family was a horror show, then you know maybe maybe you just need to drown yourself in blood for a while, right. and uh, you know per, perhaps uh, perhaps daydream a little bit. Sure, right, right, exactly. About being an action hero and being able to take control. So uh, we have on the fiction list uh, number six, W.E.B. Griffin's Hazardous Duty, written with William E. Butterworth IV. Uh, This is the eighth novel uh, in the Presidential Agent series, and Butterworth is in fact his son. The the W.E.B. stands for William E. Butterworth. So this is a father and son team writing together, um, and this thriller has a little bit of everything. It's got Mexican drug traffickers, uh, Somali pirates, uh, and uh, you know, we, we say that it, it's going to catch regular readers off balance, and uh, if Griffin's many fans wonder what their favorite author is up to with these amusing and sometimes silly hijinks, hmm. he explains it all in a short afterward. But you have to get there first. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, also on the fiction list at number 13, we have Jack Higgins's The Death Trade. You can you can see why you know, contrasting this sure. a little bit with his New Year's resolutions is yeah, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> raising an eyebrow. Uh, in, in this thriller, Iran is on the verge of making a nuclear bomb that is cheap and four times as effective as anything else on the planet. Uh, and Sean Dillon, who's starred in now, this is his 20th book, wow. uh, is... Uh, off to try and, and thwart the plot. Um, and Higgins, with his usual panache, follows a well-established and successful formula that will please his fans. And finally, uh, in uh, at number 24 on the list, that's a little further down, but uh, I think this is a noteworthy book. We gave it a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It's called The Purity of Vengeance, a Department Q novel. And it's by Jussi Adler Olsen, and it's translated from the Danish. Mm. So, you know, Scandinavian authors in mystery and thriller have been big for some time. And uh, this this is just, it's a really brilliant top-notch example sure uh, and we'd say it's full of danish jokes they're, they're pungent dark and often excoriating <laughs> ironies wrapped up in sarcastic copenhagen detective karl marx latest personal and professional entanglements uh, and adler olsen merges storylines from 1955 1987 and 2010 involving uh, a missing madam uh, and even neo-nazis so there's wow a little bit of, of everything in here and uh, we say he effortlessly mixes hilarities with horrors in a crime fiction tour de force by an author who can even turn stomach flu into a belly laugh Ooh. <laughs> so that's that's definitely one to keep an eye out right. for especially if you want something a little different from those uh, more straightforward run-of-the-mill American thrillers. Well, it's nice to see movement on both the nonfiction and fiction lists after Absolutely. a lot of pre-holiday stagnation as yep. far as new titles being introduced to the market. So. Yeah, it's uh, it, it feels like the start of a new year. Like, yeah, right, like we're, exactly. We're really, sure. we're really revving up again after digesting all this heavy holiday. Yeah, stuff. right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sarah Eckel will talk self-help for lonely hearts. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sarah Eckel in the studio with us. She's the author of It's Not You, 27 Wrong Reasons You're Single. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's really nice to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your book. Well, um, this is a book that I wrote. Um, I had been single for a very long time. Um, I met my husband when I was 39. And uh, I wrote um, an essay about it uh, in the New York Times a couple of years ago. And it was something that got a response like nothing I had ever written. Um, it was basically about uh, the fact that I was very concerned all the years that I was single that there was some big reason why I was single. And so I, um, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I'm afraid of commitment. You know, maybe I'm secretly don't really want a relationship or maybe I want it too badly and I'm too desperate and I need to develop myself. And, and I had a lot of different theories about why. And I was also at the time uh, writing a lot of articles for uh, women's magazines and sort of um, how to get over a breakup, mm -hmm. how to, how to relax, how to, how to just, how to have more confidence. And so it was 
and so I got to go to the self-help aisle, and, which was something I used to not do because, you know, I was a sophisticated person. I didn't go to the self-help aisle. I started, <laughs> and then I, and then, but, but then the validation of having an article to write, I could just go, and I wasn't embarrassed to be there. And I was just like looking through them and, 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 um, and, uh, and, you know, I started reading them and, and started interviewing a lot of authors, uh, self-help authors, and also therapists and various people. And, it it just became this thing where I, I sort of developed this this project of me of how do I fix myself so that I can be um, ready for love or how do I how do I work through my stuff so that then I can find this relationship and um, I took yoga I did meditation and all kinds of things but it just kept not working and I kept not finding anybody and I got. I kind of just got a little bit more frustrated and bitter. So um, anyway, so I wrote about this in the Times, and it turns out many, many other people have felt this way and gone through this. So, um, and I got a lot of letters um, from so many of gratitude for that. So I thought that that would be a really fun thing to explore in a book. So you started writing this while you were still single? No, um, I was at the time, um, because the the, the story ends with... um, uh, when I met um, my husband, I had been single for eight years. Um, mm-hmm. And when he asked me how long it had been since my last relationship, I didn't want to tell him because I was <laughs> embarrassed. And I thought he'd have this like, oh, what's wrong with her? Because that had happened before. And and, um, and I waited about a month before I told him. And then when I, when I finally said it, he just kind of went, well lucky for me all those other guys were idiots like lucky for me like uh, and and he just so clearly didn't care and he so clearly didn't see me as a problem that needed to be solved he just he just he just liked me and so um that was when i that was when it just kind of hit me that you don't need to be this perfect person you don't have need to be just be this wonderfully evolved person to find a good relationship you just you just need to find that right fit and then I was reading this book by um, John Gottman who's a researcher who um, stud- he studies marriage he has this great he has like a 91% accuracy rate in predicting like which people will divorce he, mm-hmm. and, and he said that 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 is a common misunderstanding about a happy marriage is that you have to the people with neuroses and hang-ups can't have a happy marriage that it's really just about because we all have our crazy buttons mm-hmm. and he just said you know you just need to find the right the, the right fit and so. my my family and i call this being compatibly crazy <laughs> perfect <laughs> That's exactly good. That's good yeah so now you have a book on the self-help aisle what's it like you know i'm really happy about it um it's it's funny i um i, I at one point i was uh, i had written a novel that that I, that I wasn't able to sell and i was kind of in a little bit of a it's kind of in a funk about that. And I started, I saw, instead of asking, you know, how can I be successful? How can I be a successful writer? I thought, well, what could I do that would be useful? And I realized that that is something that, that could be useful. And now I get letters. I got so many letters from women after um, the first modern love, and I'm getting them now from the second modern love. And and also just people who've, um, the book's only been out a couple of days, but people have, have re- read it and written to me. So... It, that is just kind of really wonderful to know that um, that I can that I've written something that that can be useful to other people. 
Well, and you had mentioned that your 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 now husband realized that you weren't a problem to fix, and you yourself said that you 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 wanted to take time to see what the problem was that you can't fix, and then you realized that there was no problem to fix. And in the book, you 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 dispel uh, cliches like you're too picky. So. Tell us about some of these cliches that that people tend to to either either friends or or well-intentioned people seem to uh, to tell us or that we tell ourselves. Well, that was like yeah, the you're you're too picky thing. I think is something that women hear from friends and family a lot. That was the thing that that probably the most common thing that that women told me that they heard. Um, and I think that it's really it comes from a nice place. It comes from the sense of like, well, clearly you're great and. Clearly, there must be many people who want to be with you. So if you're if you're alone, it, it must be your choice. And so I think that there's a way in which like it's a compliment in its way. Um, but I also think that a friend of mine told a story that, that I have in the book where she went on a date with a guy and she said um, she told her friend, you know, he was he was a really nice guy, but he ordered a Shirley Temple. And I thought that was so weird. And her friend kind of exploded at her and said, he could be the love of your life and you're mad about the Shirley Temple. And she said, she said to me later, she says, you know, but the thing is like, that wasn't actually what the problem was. It was just, we just weren't clicking. Like, but the Shirley Temple was kind of the signifier. And so I think sometimes you share some kind of detail. Like he was, you know, he was, he was drumming the table with his fork the whole time. And then, you know, somebody else says like, thinks like, well, my husband cracks his knuckles. Like, what do you, what's wrong with, you know? So I think that, that a lot of times when we, we pick these details to describe why the date isn't happening and, but it's really just something on an intuitive level is not working. And it's not to say that I've never been guilty of maybe not seeing someone or, you know, it's, it's not to say that, that none of us have ever made the mistake of, of overlooking somebody. But I think that for the most part, we have good instincts and we kind of know what works. And, you know, if, if you're not excited to go on the date, the second or third or fourth date, for whatever reason, that seems like a good enough reason to me. Tell us another uh, cliche, maybe, or, or another thing that, that, that uh, uh, people hear when they're in the dating process that people, like you said, well-intentioned people tend to say or that we say to ourselves. I think there's also like the you're too intimidating um, thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me for rolling my eyes. I've heard it so many times. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's, and again, I think it starts out as this compliment. It's kind of a funny, it's just like, well, you've got it so together and guys don't know what, you know, they don't know where there's room for them with that. And, um, but we're, we all need, you know, neediness is, is not, um, you know, and the, the, on the flip side, you can also be told you're too needy. So it's, it's very, right, but right. I, I think that, yeah, you sort of, you're good at your job. They see that, you know, and you have a nice apartment and you have it together and somehow this becomes a liability. And, um, but I think that if you're, if you're doing well in your life, then it seems to me that, then that's that's quite a display of interpersonal skills because most most of us unless we're geniuses have jobs that require good interpersonal skills good relationship skills and um and just in general the, the, these these are these are these are important skills that we have so if you're doing well in that it's this i think there's this idea that that it's a binary that that if you are doing well in your job that you you have it's like some kind of trait that you have that is really off-putting and this right. idea that successful people are really hard or abrasive or mean but i don't really see that i see 
most successful people actually have good skills in that in that sense. So, um, yeah. So I think that was one. And I, I interviewed one woman who had been told that, and she stayed with a guy for two years, and she just had to become. She just sort of diminished herself for two years to try and comfort this guy, but it's it's not worth it, and it doesn't work. You have to just be whoever you are. And sure. And and this seems like a, a very feminist approach that you're taking. Mm-hmm. Also, that there are these women who are told they're too intimidating, they're too successful. Um, and you had this uh, excerpt that ran in Salon called "Feminism Isn't Ruining Your Love Life." So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that aspect of your approach. Yeah, I, it was it was based on some research I had read, and you know, one thing that I think that Stephanie Kuhn said that um, you know women have been told for so long that. Um, if you are successful, uh, successful professional women, that you pay this price because um, somehow you're just not feminine or um, that you're too focused on your career. As if, so if you're a screw up, you're gonna like, that's gonna make you really appealing. Like I, it, just, you know, it just doesn't really make any sense. Um, and so, you know, the data now shows that uh, women who get a higher education are more likely to marry, and there and and women who are you know who who earn higher salaries are more likely to marry be married, and also that they're less likely to divorce. So this whole idea that um, if you don't snare the guy in college, you're kind of mm-hmm. you're you're in bad shape. It it just isn't true. And um, and the thing that I thought that, that Stephanie Kuntz has said that I think was so interested, she said, you know, why do people still believe this? And she says it, 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 it actually used to be true, that there used to be, um, you know, women, you know, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, if you had a master's degree, you were less likely to be married. But that just isn't the case anymore. So it's just outdated. Yeah, it's just outdated. And it's just kind of a, um, I think there's also, there can be kind of almost a nice thing, again, that, that underlies it, where you say, um, I remember once I was I was I was with some people and said like, oh, is so and so married? And it says like, no, she's a career woman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> as if, you know. right? And she she like, didn't get her MRS degree. Yeah, right. <laughs> and well, and, and so yeah, it's, it's, it's she's a career woman, which of course lots of gainfully employed women also have relationships. So it's not and and but it's it, I think there's this idea of like you want to say it's okay that you are not in a relationship because you have a career. Like you want to kind of build up that thing. So um, I think there's a, there's kind of a underlying thing that's nice, like, you know, about it, but it's, it's just outdated. Yeah. So you, you are now married and I, I was going to ask, are there things that you miss Two two questions that you miss about being single or are there lessons you've learned from being single that you can apply to being married? There's definitely lessons about being single that I can apply to being married. And, and I think the most, the most important one is just realizing that um, what I can and can't control mm-hmm. and just and, and realizing that um, that if uh, my husband is angry at me, sometimes I just have to I have to let him be angry at me. And that's it's OK. Like he'll you know, we'll we'll discuss it but I don't have to um freak out and I don't have to panic about um about what he's thinking about me at of of me at any time or I I don't have to if you know if we're having a disagreement that 
we can just be in that place of, okay, we are right now, we're really pissed off at each other. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be, and I don't have to freak out about it. And I think being single really taught me to um, understand that you just have to just go out and you do your best and you cannot control whether this like mm -hmm. random w encounter is going to happen. There's just nothing, you, know, you, you can't control it. And you really learn to just... I think that, I mean, the nice thing about marrying at an older age is that you've worked through a lot, you have worked through a lot of your stuff. And that's the thing about the book is that even though I don't think that, that working through various things or growing up um, made me um, able to find a partner, it did definitely make it easier to be in a relationship. It's just easier when you've already kind of, when you're just further along in life to... Um, work with someone because you're you're just more mature and you're more patient and you're you're not you know your your 20s you're kind of narcissistic or at least I was and so you kind of shed that as you get older so i think that is um very helpful um but i think just just recognizing the control part of it just just and and recognizing that uh you can you you would be okay on your own if that if it ever came to that so. Well, and, and also what you were saying, I'll go back to this, uh, okay. about learning so much about you and that, you know, about yourself going, you know, going into a relationship. It kind of contradicts what people may say is like, oh, you better marry before you get too set in your ways. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing that I've heard people w w have been told. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, and I talked to a lot of women who, 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 yeah, were very worried that, about that and were very worried about their ability to, to be in a relationship. And I, I maybe that, that is something that happens to some people, but, um, you know, life, I think that you, you learn whatever happens in your life. If you're aware, if you're an engaged person in the world, you're going to learn and you're going to grow no matter what happens. So it's just a matter of, of taking whatever your experience is and um and just allowing that to just make you a kinder and mm -hmm. more socially intelligent person um which you just don't have to be in a relationship to have that and so um it it um yeah i think that maybe some people do become more set in their ways but um i i think it's I think more likely, I think when I was in my 20s, I had so many fixed views about how things have to be. And then you get older and life happens and it's always, you know, life is kind of always pulling the rug out from you and you get become, I think, I do think most people become sort of softer and more adaptable because, um, because life is humbling. And when you're, when you're young, you kind of think you can kind of control everything and, right. and, um, <laughs> And then you realize you cannot. Right, right. <laughs> so tell us just a little bit about where you're turning your interest next. Are you going to write a book about being married now that you're not not single anymore, or what? What's in the pipe? I don't think I'm going to write about being married. Um, I, you know, I, I can't say for sure. Um, just because you know, being married involves you know when you write about another person that involves them, like they have to. You know, he, I, I I did an interview the other day where I talked about him and um, Mark, my husband, and, um, and then he was listening to it uh, on, the, on actually the podcast. We were at the gym together at the same time. And I thought like, oh, wow, I was talking about him in the interview. And I thought, he didn't sign on for this. Like, what? <laughs> 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 so, he was fine with it. But so, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, actually, my marriage is very happily boring. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to me, but I don't know that it would be fascinating to anybody else. But, um, um, but I think what is interesting to me is that the, the principles that I talk about in the book, even though it's so essentially about being single, it's really about um, shedding this idea that um, this, this Buddhist scholar, Choyam Trumper Rinpoche, said that um, when he first came to the West to study psychology, um, he noticed that therapists and, and all of the, the people that he was working with, there was this common idea of, of original sin, even if they didn't believe in God, there was this basic idea that they had done something wrong and were now being punished for it. And that, 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 that this concept that, that we have this fundamental flaw in us that we need to fix and I've been studying Buddhism, and, and one of the things that I really love about it is they have this idea of just basic goodness, and that we're all, um, it's sort of like the, the, the image they use is a, is a golden statue buried in the mud, and that you, if you hose, it's, we don't have to fix anything in, inside of us, you just have to kind of wash off the mud, all the, it's all the crap that we lay on ourselves about, like, I'm not, the, I'm not enough this, I'm too much that. Um, and so, and that's what I talk about in this book, but I, I really am interested in just exploring it in another way. And, and because it, it's certainly, um, all of this stuff, it's not just about being single. It's just, I think it's just about being a person and especially a person in the West. Mm -hmm. Sure. We've been talking with Sarah Eckel, and you can find her book, It's Not You, in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was great to be here. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese runs down PW's top 10 library stories of 2013, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us about the big library-related stories of 2013. Hello, Andrew. Greetings, Mark. <laughs> Greetings, Rose. Hello. It's lovely to have you here, as always. So uh, th this has been getting a lot of traction on our website since you gave a, a rundown of these top 10 stories. Can you tell us a few of the, the big library breakthroughs and interesting events of the year? Sure. Absolutely. Well, you know... I'm surprised, actually, that it has stood out the way it did, given the number of top 10 articles that come out at the end of every year. Right. But I'm pleased to say that uh, the library uh, stories were, were very welcomed, and it's, it's great. It's great to see the support and the interest in libraries out there. 2013 was uh, certainly an eventful year for libraries, to say the least. Uh, and in going back over the coverage I'd written and looking at some of the other things that were percolating, I had a hard time narrowing the list down to 10. And uh, in fact, I had to combine a few things into, into one specific topic. Uh, and tops on that list, as we often talk about, is uh, the ebook issues. Um, as, as many of our listeners know, libraries have had a difficult time with ebooks over the last few years, and tensions have risen with publishers as, as they've tried to uh, work out a way that uh, publishers could lend ebooks. Well, in 2013, there was a bit of a breakthrough. And I'm happy to report that as we head into the new year, all of the big five publishers are now participating in some way with the lending of their ebooks. Uh, most of those publishers have now expended lending of their ebooks up to their entire lists. 
And uh, there seems to be a genuine thaw in relations between libraries and publishers, which, strangely, given how close they should be, uh, had undergone a bit of a, of a rough patch in 2013. So, so what do you think led to that change? I mean, that, that is a very big deal. Well, I think there were two things that contributed to that. That would be, uh, you know, the, first the ALA put together a digital content working group and really worked hard to engage with publishers. And to the publisher's credit, they engaged with libraries, too, to sort of better discuss the issues that were at hand uh, in the ebook realm. Um, now, this wasn't a negotiation. Like, this group didn't go in and sit down with publishers and try to bang out terms for lending ebooks. They just tried to sort of have a good give and take on what the, re what the issues were. Uh, and I think the other thing, and this is the more important thing that happened, is that since that tension really began around 2010, uh, 2011 over ebooks, um, I think publishers began to see that, yeah, the libraries really did help them and really didn't hurt them. And they really needed to be engaging with libraries on this. I think there was some question among publishers that if people could sit at home on their couches with their e-readers and just borrow free library books as they became available, that they wouldn't buy them anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think now that they're convinced that that's not the case, and I think that they've begun to really look at libraries as probably the best source of discovery and the best place to actually make readers. For, so for all the content that libraries are now involved in, they still primarily are uh, devoted to the book. And I think publishers want to support that. So I, f I feel like that paranoid attitude has kind of been fading in general, that that, that was a concern with buying ebooks as well. Uh, and, and that seems to be shifting a bit. I think that's true. I think that, you know, it's understandable. If you look at the, the business of the, of the major publishers now, they're still heavily invested in print. And the trick for them is to sort of find a way to transition in a manageable way away from their legacy print businesses and into this new, you know, brave new digital world. And uh, I think that you're seeing a little more willingness to experiment, a little more willing to embrace their, their digital future. You know, we Sorry, talk huh? about ebooks uh, now that, I mean, and, and I believe this is on your list too, but now bookless libraries. A bookless library. And I think this is something you're going to see a lot more of in the future. There's a, a community in San Antonio uh, where they decided to fund and build a new library that has no books. It's basically all digital content, and they're able to... Uh, offer a ton of digital content through uh, a statewide consortium that gives them access to licensed databases. And they also have a collection of about 10,000 ebooks uh, from a number of publisher publishers, which they license through uh, various ebook vendors. Um, and and is 10,000 considered small a small number? Yeah. I mean, generally, when you think of library collections, they're vast. Mm -hmm. And usually, if you know, you're a big library with a, a good budget, you can offer a lot more. But, you know, for the community that this that this is serving, it's a good start. And I think it's it's interesting. They're also like lending people iPads and uh, bringing them in and, and giving them technology classes. I think it's, you know, there are plenty of ways to still get print books. And I think it's a little more difficult for certain parts of the population to get online. So I think that this is uh, you know, not unheard of. There are virtual branches to other libraries, but actually having a library that's devoted to ebooks and not housing print is uh, a pretty interesting development, and I think is going to point the way forward for a number of libraries in the future. Great. So what else do you got? Well, number 10 I put on the list was something that I really almost wanted to do an entire feature on, and that was uh, the death of Aaron Swartz. And some of our, li our listeners may not know who this, this young man was, but uh, his story was really incredible. And he, he committed suicide in January of 2013. So 2013 started off on a really tragic note. And, uh, you know, I first 
met Aaron Swartz when he was 15 years old. He was a genius by then. And over, you know, he was 26 years old when he died. And over those 26 years, he had amassed an incredible resume. He had been a, a fellow at Harvard's University Center for Ethics. Uh, he had developed the web feed format RSSS. He had come up with the web framework for paying on the internet. Uh, and he was the founder of the social news website Reddit. Um, and all of this, you know, as a teenager, he was a, a, a brilliant young man, and he also was facing some legal troubles. He was a, an outspoken advocate for freedom of information. And when he, one of the things that he did was he was alleged to have broken into uh, a, a closet at MIT's libraries and downloaded 4 million articles from JSTOR, which is an aggregator. And he was intending on doing something with those. We don't know exactly what. Um, uh, I'm sure it would have been interesting to see what he would have done, but he was arrested. He settled all the claims with MIT and with JSTOR. Uh, there was nobody who wanted to pursue the case except for the Department of Justice. And they seemed pretty insistent on sending this uh, brilliant young man to prison. Uh, apparently he had suffered from depression and his legal problems were mounting and he just decided to take his own life. Mm. And it's too bad. Uh, I, I only can imagine the amazing things that Aaron Swartz would have done for the library world and what he would have meant to our understanding of what it means to have a good, healthy information ecology in the future if he had remained alive. Wow. I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned him and that you brought that up. Um, I, I didn't know him, but I know a lot of folks who did. Uh, I'm being a little bit connected to that, that freedom of information activist world. And he's certainly left behind a tremendous legacy and a lot of people who are determined to to carry the flag forward so I, I do think we'll continue to see some interesting developments there but it's it is really important to recognize him as a friend of libraries specifically and as someone who could have had a, a lot of influence did have a lot of influence and could have had even more in that realm I fully agree you know he was awarded posthumously uh, the ALA's uh, James Madison Award I believe it was um, and this was for, uh, you know, activism and information and embodying the values of ALA. And his father actually spoke. This was last March. His father accepted the award on his behalf. And one of the things he said was that Aaron absolutely loved libraries. And I, I just can't, throughout the entire year, I couldn't escape the feeling that uh, we really lost something when we lost Aaron Swartz and that the, the, the library in the world would have been so much better if he had stuck around. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we always love having you on. My pleasure. Happy to be here as always. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 